0: Happy Friday, January 31st, the last day of the first month of the year. And it's also time when things really are kicking into high gear in the legislative session. We've got tons of great coverage for you on that in this week's show. Also want to remind you about our collaborative Your New Mexico government project that we're doing with KUNM Radio and the Santa Fe Reporter. That includes one of the things we're most excited about, which is our daily Your N M Gov podcast, hosted by Khalil Ecolona over at KUNM. You can check that out daily for a short bite, short summary of some of the things going on up in Santa Fe so you can feel like you're keeping track even if you aren't able to be up there. Lots of great uh, podcast episodes this week, including discussions on environmental legislation with Laura Paskus, as well as the... Extreme risk protection orders, which is also something we talk about on the show this week with Gwyneth Dolan. More on that to come. Let's kick it off though with a really interesting conversation on the line this week. It has to do with some 7 Eleven stores in town here in Albuquerque that have been deemed nuisance businesses by the city. They've been going back and forth on how to try to clean up uh, what's going on in the neighborhoods around. One of the things is doing away with the small um, nips or pints of alcohol that can be purchased there, hoping it helps to have an impact on the crime in that area. So with that, let's kick it off with Jean Grants, your host, and the line panelists to talk about the agreement that the city came up with, with those businesses.
1: We spoke about this here on the line when it first came up. Two 7-Eleven stores in southeast Albuquerque were declared nuisance properties after many, many, many complaints and asked to clean up their act. Now an agreement has been reached between those stores and the city. The stores will stop selling mini and pint-sized bottles of alcohol. They will police their areas daily and will give additional training to employees so they can avoid selling alcohol to those already intoxicated. Let me introduce the line opinion panel. All who have agreed to read up on the issues and come in prepared to tackle this story and some others. Former New Mexico House Minority Whip in line regular Daniel Foley is here. Michael Barrio, Executive Director of Prosperity Works, joins us as well. Attorney and Another Line regular, Sophie Martin is here with her take on today's topics. Last but certainly not least, Merritt Allen is here. She's the owner of Vox Optima Optima Public Relations. Sorry about that. Welcome to you all. Daniel, how do you see this? Victory for public safety, dangerous step into a slippery slope of public regulation. Yeah, it makes makes no
2: sense to me. I mean, first of all, Mm -hmm. I don't know who planned on letting the mayor stand at a podium and hold up two little minis and get that picture in the
3: Albuquerque journal. I, wondered that. I mean, I was just like,
2: this is crazy. I don't, you know, at, at the time that this is going on, mm-hmm. right, wrong or indifferent, you have a record murder rate under his watch in the city. I'm not saying it's his fault. It just came out during his watch. Mm-hmm. And the answer to that is we're gonna get two, two 7-Eleven stores to stop selling pints and minis. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I mean, you would think if you're a democrat and you wanted to address this why aren't you reaching out to someone like the attorney general you know the attorney general is in your party the attorney general has been going after
1: pharmaceutical companies the attorney well, general you up there we've got a city councilor in his district he drove this Pat Davis we have a system in place in city council to deal with these things i don't think he would have to take it necessarily well, to the ag the but general you know to do
2: something. okay i bet the attorney general has statistics how about how about looking at you're looking at a city council district mm-hmm. that's doing this basically what they're doing is they're moving the problem to the next city council Ah, district. now we're getting somewhere and so, okay mm-hmm. and so i mean it, you, why not talk to someone like the attorney general who's looked at this as a statewide effort
1: uh. i'm not whether
2: he's done a good job or not doing a good job open for conversation i get it mm-hmm. but i mean the answer to two i mean this is what people have to remember we're talking about we're impacting two 7-eleven stores mm-hmm. in the city of albuquerque and suddenly this is going to address the problem. We have a bussing system that people can get up and down central on. It, it just it just seems like at a time um, you know at a time that you know Rome is burning Nero standing on the roof with his mm-hmm. fire hose from his house saying mm-hmm. I'm going to put that put the fire out. I, hear I think it. it's a huge a huge issue. I also think it was a bad move for the mayor to have that photo op with those MINIS, and I think this was not handled correctly in my opinion the the public relations to have the mayor out saying, "Okay, we got the highest murder rate that we've ever had in Albuquerque. Here's two minis, and we're gotcha. going to address it by
1: going." Sir, <clears throat> <throat> my fault. Clear my throat there. Sophie, you're not, you I might have to you live fairly close yes, by. Exactly one of them, and was part of the problem, the Sophie. Not- <laughs> <laughs>
4: it is uh, that one of the 7-Elevens. The one on San Mateo is the closest convenience store to my house, and so I am, I am a member of that neighborhood. Right. Um, and uh, you know that 7-Eleven has been a problem for many years. Right. The neighborhood has members of the community have pushed. For changes there many for many years. Uh, for myself, I don't think this is enough. I went in the other night and I could see that they had removed the minis and pints but you can buy a, quite a large bottle of alcohol in there for not very much money. Uh, so you can uh, see that improvements are being made in terms of the changes that are agreed to, right. um, but there's still an issue with panhandling outside of it. It still does not seem safe. It is quite well lit, thank goodness. Mm-hmm. Um, and so this is, this is sort of an incremental step that maybe doesn't get the neighborhood all the way to where it needs to go. Mm-hmm. Now to, to Dan's point about the murder rate, um, there have been shootings. In and around that Seven Eleven, oh, okay. and I say in, I'm not sure that it's actually true, but but around the Seven Eleven and that property, um, it has been a magnet for for problem behaviors for quite some time, mm-hmm. um, it, and, and so, you know, to the extent that the community is saying you have to do something, mm-hmm. well, something was done, mm-hmm. um, but it, it encourages me a little bit to hear the mayor's office saying, we recognize that there may need to be more that happens here, that this is is a a trial run, essentially. I actually
1: appreciated that, that the mayor, Michael, uh, had mentioned that, that this is a bit of an experiment, a bit of a moving target. I I appreciate that he actually said that out loud, but it's hard to deny 1,127 complaints to the city's 311 line from these two places alone kind of begs you know, an answer or something had to happen and status quo was not going to suffice here.
3: Right, I mean I think something has to happen and I think that he utilized or used the proper terminology. I think it is an experiment mm-hmm. and you know the way that I see it is something does have to be done but not selling pint-sized and uh, mini bottles I, I don't think that that's that's a solution. Okay. Because are, you know, are we then saying that um, we know for a fact that alcohol is a direct correlation to all the many problems that are, that are occurring in these areas? And I don't think that we could, we could really make that case um, mm-hmm. without looking at the data. And okay. I, you know, there are a lot of social determinants that, that determine whether or not a community is going to face these kinds of issues. Mm-hmm. So I don't know that, that saying, we're not going to sell these, these um, sized liquor bottles to this, these communities. I don't know that that's the answer. And it seems like it's infringement on
1: But that, is that not it? just plain good governance to really hone in on a problem at a very micro level, very grassroots and below low you know? If that's the problem. Let me work before you get a point in, Dan. You know, because honestly, the police uh, responded 733 times. Alright, that means they're not doing something else to Dan's point about bigger issues.
5: Well, to me this is a huge government overreach and okay. if it's an experiment, it's a dangerous one because okay. if you can declare mm-hmm. a licensed, properly zoned, properly licensed, right. properly zoned business a nuisance right. because you can't keep crime down around that, um, what else can you declare a nuisance property? Someone okay. who's a political rival? Yeah. I mean, the, and then we kind of get into eminent domain and all sorts Do of Do
1: bars stuff. fall under that criteria as well? Possibly, okay.
5: possibly. We um, it, it could be uh, it, it could be uh, any type uh, of area where there's activity. It could be uh, mm-hmm. uh, a, 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 an, adult, uh, an adult club, uh, that sort of thing. Sure. If, if they're zoned, if they have the license, they should be allowed to operate. And I, I'm, I'm so upset just at the precedent whether it does any good, yeah, I, don't, I don't think it's going to do any good, mm-hmm. but it shows me um, that this government, uh, this administration is willing to take extreme government intervention steps where they aren't warranted. And mm-hmm. that should be alarming to all of us as citizens. I want
1: to take off on that point right there. Uh, the fix is it equivalent to the problem. And Sophie, to you on this, I mean, Fire and Rescue has responded 189 times. So for down and mostly for folks who were quote down and out.
4: It's interesting because it's, it's would a, they be
1: down and out whether this 7-Eleven existed? Do you know what I mean? See yeah, the point yes, No. Right. And, and
4: that's and that's actually um, part of where I wanted to go. Yeah. Um when we look at the issues um, surrounding uh, substance use, alcohol addiction, drug addiction, etc., mm-hmm. they don't exist in a vacuum. Okay. And so, to just say, well, we're gonna—I mean, to Dan's point, we're just gonna take the alcohol out of this one area—doesn't then address the host of other issues right. like mm-hmm. the that are and at, and the that are at play, or, or poverty, poverty, or poverty, or yeah. poverty, and,
2: the, men- and sure. the mental health, the mental health disparity we have in New Mexico and especially in Albuquerque. I mean, you know, where I think this is a is failed as an experiment. uh, You know, I agree 100% with with uh, merit on the whole overreach stuff. But I think that, you know, these folks are not getting off work and going to the 7-Eleven and buying a pint and just right. happen to be drinking too much. They're self-medicating. And if you yeah. take the alcohol away from them, self-medicating there and don't replace that with an opportunity for them to get the help they need, mm-hmm. you're just going to create the problem. It's either gonna move mm-hmm. or it's gonna grow as a problem there. I would like to have seen the mayor say, we're not doing this and by the way, we're doing this to address the mental health problem that clearly is one of the issues at foot here. And we're not, we're once again ignoring <clears throat> the, the the need for mental health and help in Albuquerque right. by just saying, hey, we're gonna get a quick political snapshot, no more minis, no more pints, and these people are gonna right. go somewhere. Would that I point be know made? I don't that this administration's loose?
4: not doing anything on mental health. I, I mean, I think that, that we can't isolate one thing. I'm just sort of, as I was saying before, you don't isolate one thing within a system. Mm-hmm. Um, and so this is, this is part of what I see the administration trying to do, um, but I think it, it's, a, it's, a, it's a thing that makes the neighborhood potentially feel good. Um, it may, as Dan said, push drinkers to other areas. It may push them to drinking more. I mean, there are some, uh, sort of anecdotally, I, I know of some people who I'm, they manage their drinking because it's a small bottle, mm-hmm. and they time it out with a small mm-hmm. bottle. And a bigger bottle might be more dangerous. So Why, I just think it's very complex.
1: Around. A year from now, it's exactly the same or appreciably the same. You know, how does the experiment look at that point?
3: Well, I think I think that I think it's possible that we will see some things turn around, but mm-hmm. I don't think it's going to be because you're not able to purchase those uh, sizes of alcohol. Right. I think it's. I mean, all the other solutions that that were included in this, those, frankly, sound much more substantive than it feels like the, the alcohol bit was just tacked on. Right. Because it sounds good. It's the most interesting. It's, it's the yeah. most interesting. It's something that I mean, the mayor shows up with, you know, little bottles, as Dan points out. Um, so you know, I think that there could be some some positive outcomes from it. I mean. What do they, they say, clear 90% of each window of posters, install cameras, signs, no trespassing signs, training for uh, mm-hmm. employees to not serve. That just sounds
1: like the regular sounds, course of business. Right. You not know,
5: franchise, franchise owners mm-hmm. um, of convenience stores in Albuquerque are rebranding. Right. A lot of 7-Elevens are turning into right. DK. It's that's a very right. different mod looking, um, not quite so uh, run down. Uh, the rest of the, the country
1: has really flipped on the on i just the i just gotta got run that. on this one okay, okay. my fault We're out of time after the break the super bowl is this weekend we check in with a pueblo about the, their decision to add a sports betting facility to its casino
0: all right time to take a break from all of the legislative news of course a lot of people will be in front of the tv set this coming sunday it is super bowl weekend And in New Mexico, as in many places, something that's new for a lot of folks is sports betting is now legal thanks to a 2018 U.S. Supreme Court decision, and that's opened the doors for several of the tribes here in New Mexico to open up sports books in their casinos. This week, Antonia Gonzalez, our correspondent from Aquatic Broadcasting, host of National Native News, she sits down uh, to talk to some folks from the Isleta tribe, who have opened up a sports book to talk about what, made in, what went into this decision to open that and how they make sure that everything stays on the up and up and what kind of opportunities are available there. New opportunity for the tribe for economic development and something that's going to change a lot of the way we all consume and watch sports. So here we go with Antonia and her guests.
1: Football fans and even fans of clever commercials are getting ready to watch the Super Bowl this weekend. For years, the NFL championship has involved friendly wagers, and this year's matchup between the Kansas City Chiefs and the San Francisco 49ers will be no different. Others have laid down more than just a casual wager. A 2018 U.S. Supreme Court decision opened the door for tribes across the country to accept sports betting in their casinos. Here in New Mexico, Santa Ana, Laguna, and Azuleta Pueblos have started sports books. Other tribes are exploring the option too. This week, NMAF correspondent Antonia Gonzalez looks at sports gambling at Isleta, how the pueblo chose to open its sports book, what business is like, and what other tribes are weighing before they act.
6: Joining me now are Edward Calabasa, a former Isleta tribal council member, and Stacy Chafins, Isleta player development manager at the casino. Welcome to New Mexico PBS.
7: Thanks for having Thank me. Thank
6: you well sports betting is fairly new after the 2018 supreme court opened it up for states and tribes a number of tribes across the country including here in new mexico um, decided to try it out including isleta can you tell us a little bit ed how that idea came about for the tribe
7: well the tribal council had been talking about that possibility because we knew that that case was making its way through the supreme court Uh, once they made their ruling uh, with our general counsel, we started putting things in motion. We wanted to know more information as to, uh, really what are the, the percentages? What's the, what would be the win and loss? Um, was it worth it for us to do that? Because it meant reconstructing a part of the casino to build a sports book. And so would we be able to recoup that cost? Um, the investment, you know, our ROI, was that going to be there? So. Um, we did a number of things like uh, calling other tribes, uh, call, visiting Las Vegas. We also went to the UNLV uh, School of Gambling, uh, took a course there, visited casinos there in Las Vegas. Uh, and then we started feeling out the waters as to who was gonna set our betting lines and how much did they want on their end for taking that risk and responsibility. So there, it wasn't something uh, as fast as, hey, the Supreme Court made its decision, tomorrow we're gonna to start sports betting it what you know there was a lot of research and uh, we had to do our homework so to speak
6: and uh, Stacy you were involved as well as like Ed is talking about going to the classes and learning about sports betting and how was that beneficial to having the fruition of the sports book opening at the casino
8: it was the training was really good the UNLV training that we went to we had um, another the GLI come and train us on property. Uh, it helped overall get more people in the casino familiar, employee-wise, um, different departments, so they would understand what this was all about and you know how we were going to start. And um, we started in a temporary location, and then we moved. They had the construction done to build the new sportsbook.
6: And how has it been received so far by guests?
8: It's been received very well. It's. Um, grown our demographic of people that come into the casino. It's uh, a group that we probably didn't have before and now you know, we have more people that are interested in the sports book that uh, might use our entertainment and our restaurants or play tables as well. So it's definitely grown our demographics of people.
6: And um, how do you see that as part of um, you know, achieving a goal for for the tribe. Uh, you know, there was a lot of millions of dollars went into the renovation for the sports book. How is that? Um, what 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 were some of those ideas behind that decision? Well,
7: really, it's just another amenity. Um, you know, if we're not going to offer it, our guests may go to another casino that's that's ha- that has it. Um, Santa Ana was the first in the state to do it, and almost immediately, I know friends who are also sports bettors, they went, they went there almost immediately, and they would stay there in that Bernalillo area and not visit the other casino, like Sandia or Isleta, Route 66, because we weren't offering it at that, at that time. So Santa Ana really had, uh, you know, the motherload of, of people who are interested in sports betting. Um, they, sports bettors may go with their wives, and their wives may play the slots. Sports betters want to go to the sports book, so it's it's a happy medium for everybody. In terms of um, getting back those costs, I mean, we were we were excited when we uh, finally moved from that temporary location to the to the big sports book location. Um, New Mexico is unique in terms of its compacts because we cannot allow uh, class three gaming with alcohol to be infused. So we're unique in that we need a, a. Divider to separate where we're making the transactions and the bar that's located inside the sports book. If that makes sense. If if you've visited that section, I mean, a lot of people have the misnomer that we're like Las Vegas and people are walking around the casino with alcohol, and that's just not the case. So, New Mexico is unique in that they make those stipulations. Those are part of the compacts that we have with the state.
6: It's like any, like you're saying, if you go to any tribal casino, the the bar, the alcohol, wherever that's being sold, the alcohol stays
7: in the bar and it has to be separated from the class through gaming. That's correct.
6: And when it comes to gambling, any kind of gambling or even tribal casinos, there's a lot of opinions. Sure. Um, and then adding to sports betting, there's also a lot of opinions on that. Was there any kind of pushback um, because it has to do particularly with sports and betting
7: on sports? I think the biggest pushback that we heard um, because was that we were not going to restrict our gambling. Uh, for instance, with the two schools in New Mexico, University of New Mexico and New Mexico State University Athletics. We were not going to restrict betting on those two entities. Um, Santa Ana from the get-go said, we're not gonna take bets on those two schools. So really that was the initial discussion. Um, other, other than that, I don't know that we've felt any kind of negative ramifications from that. Uh, there's always a concern and there was concern even back when I started Um, making bets back in the early 90s and late 80s, you couldn't go to Las Vegas and bet on the UNLV Rebels. You could only bet on the Rebels in Reno, Nevada, or Lake Tahoe, and vice versa. The University of Nevada, Reno, you couldn't make bets on those teams in Reno. You had to go to Las Vegas or elsewhere, uh, Laughlin, to make those bets. So I think that's all come full circle. I think people are understanding that games aren 't being fixed there's I mean and there is always going to be that suspicion, but I think we've come a long way in terms of recognizing um, and Stacy can talk more about the way that they monitor gambling activity you know um, there are player profiles that are set up, and if there's a change, a huge hiccup in some like for instance i i 'll bet twenty twenty five dollars here and there on, on a game if For some reason, I go into the casino and make a $5,000 bet that's completely out of the ordinary, then suspicions are going to start to arise. And that's how you kind of track, monitor, and look into different types of suspicious activity. Do you want to add
8: anything to that Stacy? Um, at Azleta we do require a players club card to make a sports book bet. That also helps us recognize, it's like Edward said, if you're making 20, 25 dollar bets and then jump up to 5,000, there's a suspicion there, is that really you know, your play? So we do monitor that internally as well through our compliance to you know, make sure that we do know our customers.
6: And um, I also was interested in when you were going through the discussions and going to these different schools and learning about sports betting, was there any kind of discussion about how this may um, bring to light illegal sports betting at all? Was that part of discussions? Yeah.
7: I mean, at the training, they identified two major um, scandals that have erupted. And and there's only been two uh, with college basketball. Um, That was at the Boston College and at arizona state and the way they found the out the arizona state one was you had these kids that were coming in from tempe wearing their arizona state memorabilia but they were betting on the other team so that gave rise to suspicion like what are these kids doing like what do they know that we don't and that went over a a period of several weeks So they finally just took Arizona State off the board, and then down the road, after some investigations, after calls to the school, they found out that there was some uh, game fixing, some point shaving, is what they call it, that was going on there. And then, of course, the Boston College one is uh, infamous because it um, was arranged by the mob. You know, there were members of the mob that fixed those games. And uh, I believe one of them is the lead character in um, a mob movie. But yeah, that I mean that was at Boston College. Yeah,
6: and is there? You talked a little bit about Players Club and some of the measures that it takes to to kind of track or prevent mm-hmm. any kind of I guess dishonesty. Maybe um, do you have anything to add to that or what Ed was
8: saying? Um, it also helps with us marketing-wise, so we can kind of see. Who makes who bets on the sports games and also goes to the tables and slots and we can give offers and promotions according to that. We um, in the sports book are currently doing a, pr- a promotion. Every time you make a uh, bet, you get a drawing ticket, and then on March first, we'll do a drawing for two um, two or a pair of tickets to the final four game. So it's kind of, we're trying to put out there that we, you know, would like your business and we'll also kind of give promotions back due to us being able to take the Players Club card. So that definitely has helped us for a few reasons. So it's good.
6: And uh, you know, like we said at the beginning of this talk that this is fairly new for states, tribes. It's the, um, I believe, is it a year, nearly a year old, the sports book now? About Not about even six months. Yeah, it hasn't okay. been a
7: year. Um, actually when we started the process, the initial goal was to try and get the sports book up by March Madness last year. So thank goodness it'll be up now. Um, Super Bowl was a little bit far-reaching, but um, yeah, that I mean, that, those, two, those are two big events, and those are arguably the two biggest sports betting events. Um, would that will take place in a calendar year. So we were gunning for the March Madness date, but that never happened. Um, there were some just delays in, in terms of wanting to be thorough, wanting to, you know, uh, cross the t's, dot the i's, that whole thing. Uh, we had other members of the tribal council that had no interest in us pursuing that. And so we had others that had never been to a sports book. And so, it just took a lot of education, a lot of, like I said, a lot of research. We wanted to do our homework to make sure this was the right thing for us to do.
6: So what do you hope for the future, and then Stacy can add to that too, for when it comes to sportsbook and sports betting at Isleta? Uh,
7: quite honestly, my, my hope as this thing progresses would be that we are able to uh, get apps on the mobile, mobile phone and then be able to bet like they do in Nevada. So in Nevada there's a, a geofence that goes around the state and you can make a bet on your, on your phone. And so that gives rise to in-game wagers. For instance, if somebody is fouled in a basketball game and has free throws coming up, the in-game wagerings uh, will be, will he make the free throws? Or will he make one out of two free throws? Will he make both free throws? And you can do, they, they put up those odds almost instantly. And it's just a more exciting, funner way, in my, in my opinion, to watch a game. Um, it's like the prop bets for the Super Bowl. You know, they have different bets of what color is the Gatorade going to be? Um, who's going to win the coin toss? Will somebody make an interception that will be run back for a touchdown? I mean, there's hundreds of these prop bets that, that take place. How long will the national anthem go? Um, you know, and so, like again, it's just one of those things. It's just, uh, for me, as a, as a longtime sports watcher and sports advocate, I just, it just brings more excitement to the game
8: and Stacy? I just think that we right now we have five sports riding terminals for people to make their bets and four kiosk machines and just to expand with that I mean we're already growing with um, you know the lines of people that we have and to just make it you know more more exciting place to be. I mean, right now everyone loves being there, and they become friends—people that don't even know each other—but they're cheering on the same team, and you know they're all friends. So, just make you know, just more of that. Just to see where we stand. I mean, we're only less than six months open, so we will you know see and excited for the future.
6: And Ed, just your thoughts on tribal sovereignty uh, to tribal casinos. Indian gaming is part of tribal sovereignty, and also. Um, to benefit tribal citizens through economic development the, and the betterment of overall communities. So just your all, thoughts on Isleta Pueblo.
7: Right, and all, I mean, and all of that goes hand in hand. I mean, if we can provide a great place for entertainment and people to, to go there uh, as the business grows, then we benefit as a tribe because um, we do have a, a good portion of our tribal budget is supported by the casino. Um, So, as that grows and our budget grows, um, you know, we like to get more social programs in the works uh, to help out the residents and the tribal members of of Isleta. Um, We are a sovereign nation. In fact, um, the first company that we went to that was going to help us out to make the, that was going to take the risk of setting our lines had to back out because they didn't want to, uh, they wanted us to waive our Sovereign immunity, and that's just something a tribe would never do. And so, we went back to the drawing board and had to had to wait for another another company that was that was willing to say, okay, we respect your right for sovereignty, and you know, and we'll work with you. So,
6: well, I want to thank you both for being here today, and we look forward to um, following this issue up in the future. And Ed, your Super Bowl prediction.
7: Oh, jeez. Uh, I think it'll be a high-scoring game. I th- I'm going to take the over.
6: <laughs> He's a huge sports yes, fan. I had is. to ask him that. Well, thank you so <laughs> Thank you both. Thank, thank you. you very much for having us.
0: All right, of course, it is one of the hot topics of the legislative session this year, although there wasn't a guarantee the governor was going to put it on her call for the session because it's not directly budget-related. But she decided to put legalization of cannabis for recreational purposes on the call. And that bill had its first hearing this week. It did pass out of the Senate Public Affairs Committee, but there was a lot of debate on both sides of the issue uh, from the community, as well as from the members of that committee. And the line weighs in on that debate so far, the future of the bill, the possibilities that it might get passed or voted down this year, and also just a lot of the challenges and questions that linger over this bill which may stall things out a bit as lawmakers try to figure out how to handle things like workplaces that have no tolerance rules. So Line Panel's got all that covered for you this week, a lot of great insight there. So we hope you enjoy this discussion.
1: Senate Bill 115 would legalize the sale of recreational cannabis. It passed its first hurdle on Tuesday as Senators voted 4-3 to 3 along party lines, Democrats for and Republicans against. To pass it after hours of public comment and debate, those in favor cite public support and the opportunity for an economic boon. Those against bring up safety and health issues among other concerns and merit. We'd be roughly one of a dozen states with legalized recreational cannabis, but we'd be one of, I believe, three states or the fourth state, I'm not sure if I have my uh, I believe it's third. third, yeah, to pass it by statute versus you know a public public vote. Um, initial takeaway, I want to ask first of all from your sense of this initial conversation about uh, recreational cannabis, how did that how did the how did that come out to you? What's your gut feeling? Well,
5: there? I, I think there's very much a feeling that recreational cannabis is de facto legal. I mean, if you have a hangnail and two cereal box tops, you can go get a prescription for cannabis. Right. Um, I was in a brew pub the other day that's next to a medical dis- a dispensary, and I was just going in to get a beer, and were, the weed was so strong, wow. like dang, I'm almost getting a contact high from being next to the dispensary, and I you know, I asked uh, the bartender, he's like, yeah, we get that a lot. Mm-hmm. It, 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 It's here, it's being done, um, law enforcement doesn't seem very upset about it, so mm-hmm. I think doing it by statute, not by um, uh, going to the voter, uh, I think will be fine. Mm-hmm. Um, I think there are inconsistencies in t- in this project, I think there hasn't been a lot of openness. Uh, it's been a, the the policy experts who've come in to make these recommendations for this bill mm-hmm. haven't done a lot of listening, but they have done a lot of comments. So that's why, you know, this 173 page bill, right. uh, we, uh, what I don't get is why we have a Cannabis Regulation Advisory Committee. Why don't we have a Cannabis Regulation Committee?
4: Right, right. Uh, cannabis Regulation <laughs>
5: Advisory Committee that also has to have um, a representative of organized labor. What? Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. And there, there's just, there, there's so much extra in the bill. I, w- I would like the bill to say, um, we will decriminalize recreational use January 1st, 2021. We will allow growing to begin January 1st, uh, mm-hmm. 20, uh, 2022. These reports will happen and some filler in, and maybe it could be 30 pages. Um, I, I think it's trying to do too much, and in doing so much, they've uh, got some major gaps like medical providers. Mm-hmm. And then a representative <clears throat> or senator, I don't, uh, uh, Steinborn, uh, you know, commented, you're still making it a fourth degree felony to own three plants right. uh, as an individual. So, right. w- what is it? Is it decriminalized? Is it not?
1: Gotcha. Mm-hmm. So Lots to work be answered. To be done. Exactly right. Michael, same question. There was interesting uh, pushback from some of the rural legislators, of course. They have their concerns about, particularly, uh, liability to the state when it comes to workman's compensation. I thought that was very interesting. When you listen to the, to the testimony from Tuesday, that, you know, because it stays in your system for so long, how does it really prove if you have an accident on the work site is it actually? The, the weed's fault, something else. I mean, you see what I mean? It's, it's a tricky thing for the state. Some work to do there as well, it would I seem I mean, to it's me. a valid
3: concern, and, mm-hmm. um, you know, if we're being honest, the technology just simply doesn't exist yet to accurately pinpoint, you know, when someone has actually um, smoked or imbibed. Mm-hmm. That's right. And, <clears throat> but, you know, thinking about the rural communities, thinking about this debate at all, a lot of it seems if I'm being honest it's, it seems a little silly to me because I feel like um, the arguments against having it legal is they're they're based on antiquated ideas of what drugs are and i and I in some ways, I feel like are we hearkening back to the reefer madness period in the <laughs> 1950s where mm-hmm. we're working off this old information? you know the fact that marijuana is still a schedule one drug or whatever that i mean come on right. and so I mean, even looking at people. Talking about oh well we're concerned about uh, marijuana overdose and things like that well I you know the definition of marijuana overdose is basically paranoia um, uh, loss of motor function abilities that and to eating me, that lots of like cupcakes gross. I mean right, so <laughs> right, right. I mean it's basically mm-hmm. the same thing um, so you know I, I just feel like we have to. We have to work with information that's a little bit better and that's, you know, up to speed in terms of...
1: So on Michael's point, you could sense some frustration from Senator Jacob Candelaria, who's leading the charge on this, that he's having to chop through a lot of weird anecdotal stuff that's been twisted around a lot. A lot of the numbers, the folks who were opposed... He's got different numbers that says, no, the DOIs don't go up, but all the people say, no, it does go up. It, it was very odd to watch him try to get through all of this. It, it, was, it,
4: mm-hmm. it was a fascinating, um, fascinating hearing to watch, and I, and I can recommend to the viewers that, I mean, it is online, it is, mm-hmm. I think it is worth watching if this is a, a subject that you're interested in. I mm-hmm. thought it was very interesting. Well, one thing that, that really struck me as I was watching the discussion is that it felt to me that we were, for the most part, And this is not necessarily true, for instance, of the Albuquerque Chamber of Commerce and some of the other groups that spoke against, but for the most part, it felt to me that the legislators had come to the realization that it was likely that it would happen. And they were starting to talk more about the logistics. Mm -hmm. And so, for instance, there was a discussion about licenses for growers. Would they be um, managed the same way that liquor licenses are managed and nobody seems to want that, I think for understandable reasons. Mm -hmm. And so it, it feels a little bit more like, yes, there are still some discussion about should this happen at all. But now there's more of a practical conversation, which in my mind suggests that as it goes forward, mm-hmm. the expectation is <clears throat> that it will pass in some form. So mm-hmm. what can what can legislators do to have it pass in, right. in the form that they right. think
1: is best? You know, interestingly, Dan, when you watch the uh, debate, I think all but one of the current medical suppliers, medical cannabis suppliers right. voted in support. Only one was opposed. And then, uh, then later on in the debate, it was like, oh, wait, the medical suppliers will have a one-year head start mm-hmm. on selling recreational ostensibly because it, they are already in the business. It brings some balance to it. Jerry ortiz Pino had a little bit of heartburn about that. I could sense he really thought maybe there was a little bit of an unfairness issue here as it works through the process. It, 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 the, who gets to do it and who gets to get in on the cash cow early is always going to be problematic, isn't it? Well, that's the it's key, right? Because, right. I mean, if you're,
2: if you're not one of the first guys in by the time this. Takes off, it's gonna, you know, it's gonna wind up being like, you know, if if you were the first guy in Albuquerque with an e-cigarette franchise, right. you made a ton of money. Now, if you got e-cigarettes, everybody's selling them anywhere. They get them gas stations. So timing, you know, mm-hmm. business-wise, is always important. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I think I think there's some some issues though that we've been talking about. That I think people are kind of glossing over. Being in the insurance business, mm-hmm. um, you know, you you do have this question about impairment they're right that today if someone pulls you over there's a difference and I'll defer to you there's a difference between driving while intoxicated and driving under the influence That's you both both of them have problems right. i mean you could get in trouble either one sure. so you know driving while intoxicated I'm assuming means you've been drinking, driving under the influence means you've taken something other than alcohol. Right. So you can hold people accountable for that. That to me, I'm not I'm not worried about. Okay. Um, I, and by the way, back when I was in the legislature, I was a leading proponent of decriminalization. You know, we've talked about this for many years. I think our prisons are full of nonviolent drug offenders and the alternative to mandatory sentencing for nonviolent drug offenders is to let violent criminals out the back door so we can put people who have not committed a crime right. other than having drugs in yep. prison. And it's a ludicrous. And archa- Philosophy, but what we do have to look at more importantly from the business perspective. I'm not worried about people, you know, kind of to Michael's point, the reefer madness. You know, people are going to be driving like the guys from, uh, like, like Chris Farley was when they had the, when they were driving in the police car. You know, do you know why I pulled you over? Was I speeding? No, you're going three, three miles an hour. <laughs> and most people I pull over go to the shoulder, not the median. That's not happening. I'm right. not worried about that. Sure. What you are worried about is the guy that drives a truck the guy that drives a forklift, yep. the contractor that does have an accident at work, That's right. and when you test them, you can't tell, did they get stoned last night, That's right. did they smoke weed the night before, did they smoke it over the weekend? Mm-hmm. Everybody's body <clears throat> metabolizes it differently. Mm-hmm. Now. You could say the same thing about alcohol when it first came out, Mm -hmm. but they came up with a breathalyzer test. I think we're not that far away from coming up with an ability to Mm -hmm. test this. And I know that Sandia is one of the leading places working on this. Mm -hmm. To me, that's a huge question to overcome. The recreational side of it. I do think we have to have some serious conversations. Um, You know, you talk to the people in Colorado and some of those folks now have reservations about the long term. Uh, uh, ramifications on the state and the state budget mm-hmm. and so I just I hope that we go slow and we look at this and say look because we're all looking at this for one reason one reason only a windfall of money that's right and if we're able that's to right. put some of this money away to say listen we're gonna put money
1: away to deal with the potential problem later then I think it'll work okay. we got a minute left um, a point made by Terry Cole from the Greater Al- Albuquerque Chamber there are a lot of federal places and other places mm-hmm. that have a zero tolerance policy
5: Oh, Absolutely. How, how
1: do we get around that? That that that's going to be problematic. Yeah. No, right. Okay, so
5: I I um, have to hold a federal security clearance. Right. I can't hold it and be an active uh, marijuana user. That's so right. guess what? I'm not going to use it.
1: Right. I mean that's
3: right.
5: th- that's the situation. I think I think that's very simple, cut and dried. I mm-hmm. think. The, the biggest issue for New Mexico is we have to understand the big boom and the race is kind of already, you know, the bubble's already kind of gone down. Colorado, California got that. Yeah. We're not going to be part of that. And what will also limit us is our water.
1: Mm-hmm. Yes. Why big point of contention issue? there. That's it for us on that topic. We're going to revisit that one in the future for sure. Now, Gwyneth Dolan takes us to the legislature next. Then it's on to our final line topic, wage theft.
0: And another hot button legislative issue this year, again this year because it came up last year as well, are what are called extreme risk firearm protection orders or sometimes referred to as red flag laws. This is a proposal that would allow police to take guns away from people if a judge determines that the individuals involved, the gun owner, poses a threat of immediate danger to themselves or others. Lots of really interesting heated debate on this is up in Santa Fe as well. It also passed out of that same Public Affairs Senate committee that passed the cannabis bill. Moves on to judiciary now, but uh, there was really passionate discussion on both sides of the aisle. Of course, it's a hot-button Second Amendment issue. Uh, Proponents also talk about how this is a way that those who uh, want to commit suicide could be protected from themselves in ways that we just don't have right now. So Gwyneth Doland, our Your NMGov correspondent this year again, headed up to talk to some of the lawmakers that are sponsoring the bill and get into the debate, what they're thinking about, why they support it or don't, and where it sort of heads next in the legislative session with uh, only three weeks left to go after yesterday. So take a listen to here. Again, Gwyneth Dolan and Representative Bill Rehm, Senator Antoinette Cedillo-Lopez, and Representative Joy Garrett.
1: A controversial bill at the Capitol would allow a judge temporarily take someone's firearm after a court hearing found they were a danger to themselves or others. It's often called a red flag law, and 17 other states have them. The measures, Senate Bill 5 and House Bill 7, set out a framework for who could petition the court for a temporary restriction, how long it would last, and how law enforcement would go about getting those firearms from gun owners. And my off-correspondent, Gwyneth Dolan, was at the Roundhouse to talk to the women and men considering the bill.
9: Senator Antoinette Cedillo-Lopez, you are supporting a bill that would allow law enforcement to take guns
10: away from some folks. Why do we need this? I think this bill is really important to prevent the kinds of tragedies that we saw in El Paso, that kind, those kind of gun shootings when people really are posing a danger to themselves or others. It will also prevent suicides. We heard very powerful testimony from an individual who felt like this could have prevented a gun, sh- a gun sh- a shooting of, of her cousin who was very depressed. And so this is an opportunity to really prevent that, sign of needless, that kind of needless gun death.
9: There were people who talked in a committee hearing this week about their fear that this is going to allow the government to come in and just grab guns indiscriminately, round them all up and keep them forever.
10: That is just not possible. We have a second amendment and this is a very, very small number of people. I don't know how many cases exactly there are, but last year with the domestic violence and gun safety bill, only 29 individuals were ordered to surrender their guns. It, this isn't a, lo- a big uh, takeaway of guns and I would never support a big government roundoff. We, we have a second amendment.
9: Representative Rehm, you spent 20 years as a law enforcement officer. Do you think police should be able to take guns away from people who a judge has determined pose a threat to themselves or others?
11: Okay, if you're speaking about the red flag bill, the problem is, is that the judge is doing this without any due process. What's happening is, is this is occurring, and I wanna talk about our Constitution. Our Constitution says that you're innocent until proven guilty. The way most red flags have bills are written says, we're gonna come take your, your weapons on an accusation, not a, not a criminal act, and then you have two weeks to come into court and prove that you're not. Our our system is you're innocent until proven guilty. This turns it backwards where it says you're guilty, now you prove to the court you're not. And so conceptually, we have problems with it from law enforcement. If a person makes a threat to another person. We already have laws for that and the officer can go and investigate it and that includes even doing search warrants and taking their weapons if they believe that threat is credible.
9: Suicide though, we um, there's been some very emotional testimony about folks who talk about it, their families are really worried about it because they've had this notice and what I mean it, that's not exactly the same situation.
11: Okay, so let's talk about suicides. When I would respond to them, if there was a firearm, I would take the firearm into what we term safekeeping. So I would place it into evidence and it wouldn't be in the home. Um, When we talk about changing the mentally ill portion of who can obtain a firearm or not obtain it, that change needs to come federally. Right now, it's only those who have gone through court and been adjudicated mentally ill. And it needs to be a wider group, I agree. But it has to be done federally and we can talk about that later.
9: So what do you say to folks who um, watched the terrible shooting in El Paso, who've experienced school shootings here in New Mexico, who are watching this violence, who have been victims of it? How should we stop this violence?
11: If we look at the root cause, it is mental illness. And I think we all would agree with that.
12: Representative Garrett, you are a sponsor of the Red Flag Bill. Why is this important to you? Gwen, I'm sponsoring the Red Flag Bill because first of all, I'm a teacher and a parent. Last year, I had to work with kindergartners and elementary school kids to learn how to evacuate in case of a shooter on campus. No child should have to worry about that. That's my first motivation. The second is the friend, a friend of mine's daughter had a gun. They knew she was suicidal. She had access. They couldn't get to her, but they couldn't call a law enforcement officer to get that gun from her. She did successfully commit suicide. So this is a tool that allows guns to be taken away from someone only if they are in imminent danger of harming themselves or others. And I wanna stress imminent danger. But how do we know there's imminent danger? Who decides? As the law is currently crafted, close family members or a law enforcement officer who feels that there's evidence, maybe over time, maybe in a crisis situation, can go to a judge with a sworn affidavit stating that this person is at risk, the judge then has to decide to grant the protective order or not. It's not automatic.
9: So some folks say we would be better off trying to um, work and put more resources toward mental health because that's the primary cause of
12: gun violence. Mental health is the first tier of care but in some of our rural counties where actually there's a higher rate of suicide, it's not available. So this is one tool that is available to law enforcement when someone is at risk for committing suicide. And why are guns so important in suicide cases? More than 50% of the suicides in New Mexico, and New Mexico I believe has the fourth highest rates of suicide, are committed with a firearm. A young person, who's impulsive and going up and down emotionally can grab a gun without thinking and quickly attempt to end their life. So that's why guns are the first concern. And, and I should add, we have high rates of suicide in our 15 to 23 age bracket. Native Americans have the highest rate. Um, our young people are in crisis sometimes. So this really prevents tragedy. Will it prevent every suicide? Of course not. It's one tool.
0: Last up this week, uh, the line is at it again. This time, they are looking at something else the governor brought up in her State of the State address, and that is the backlog of wage theft cases that the state is dealing with. The numbers are about 1,900, and there's really a lot of them tied to the state's new minimum wage hike. Um, and the money that should be going to wage earners that is not getting there, how you parse out what is um, actual wage theft as opposed to something else, how you go about this and get on top of this because of course this is money folks desperately need and in a lot of ways are owed. Really interesting conversation here including how a lot of these things may get solved with settlements and whether or not that is actually providing justice to the people who've been shorted that money. So I want to send out a special thank you to our aligned panelists this week. That's Merritt Allen of Vox Optima, Michael Barrio of Prosperity Works, Dan Foley, former state representative, and Sophie Martin, an attorney. Dan and Sophie, of course, are regulars on the show, and Michael and Merritt here a bunch as well. So that wraps up the show for this week. Again, don't forget to check out the Your NMGov podcast, Spotify, iTunes, anywhere you get your podcasts. Same with this one. Please subscribe, share, rate, review, let everybody know about it. And we will talk to you next week.
1: There's a backlog of about 1,900 complaints of wage theft linked to enforcement of the state's minimum wage law out there. Complaints by low-wage laborers that their employers are not adequately paying them. They're starting to pile up during the Martinez administration, you might remember. Workforce Solutions Secretary Bill McCamley says he needs more investigators for complaints in order to continue to fulfill major provisions stemming from a 2018 lawsuit settlement. Michael, in 2018 the state's minimum wage was 7.50. dollars uh, in January 1st of this year, went up to 9 bucks an hour. Do you think with this new increase the number of, of these complaints are going to go up? We can only assume that what we have on the books now is probably just the tip of an, of an iceberg really anyway. Seems, yeah. I mean, yeah,
3: <laughs> this is a problem that really needs to be addressed. Mm-hmm. Uh, th- that large of a backlog is something that I don't think that we can just ignore. So mm-hmm. <laughs> I think that Secretary McHamley is, is is right to say we we really need to some funds to actually uh, substantially address this problem mm-hmm. because I don't think that it's going to go away. Um, you know, and so this is this is something that greatly impacts huge uh, populations of our of our citizens and that's so right. if we're not if we're not trying to get out in front of this you know I mean how much longer are we going to sit around and right one of the hidden, what are the hidden
1: uh, parts of the labor force is our immigrant community right. and this is a big part of what's the complaints are coming from the immigrant community mm-hmm. he's, he wants to be that up he's acknowledging that would you like to see a little bit more is that's is that well understood in our our state and our society
3: well I think I think what he's doing what he's proposing is I think it makes sense what he's proposing mm-hmm. now. I think um, the fact that he wants to do more is, is indicative of, of how, you know, how he views us progressing on this issue mm. in this state. And so, you know, I mean, we'll see where it goes. Sure. Um, but I do, like, much to your point, I think it is the tip of the iceberg, and I think we'll start to see a little, a, a little bit more kind right. of build up. Right. Hopefully we don't. Right. Uh,
1: uh, you don't use uh, low-wage help in, in your shop. You are an employer. How do you see this from an employer's point of view? I mean, people are clearly gaming the system here, not willing to go there on this minimum wage thing. Well,
5: and I think I think um, it's gonna be an uh, an issue for uh, rural employers who uh. maybe couldn't keep up. It's going to be an issue for restaurants. I mean, and I'm sure the Restaurant Association has uh, a, a view on this. Mm-hmm. From From my perspective, I'd like to see I would guarantee there is a devastating backlog of something in every state agency we have, mm, because yeah. that's how it have been running. I'd love to see everybody step up and say, I need one-time funding to make my agency competent. Right. I mean, I think that would go a long, long way uh, to helping our state. I think this is potentially political gold, they've done press conferences on it, we're covering it, so we've raised the minimum wage, we're legalizing weed, uh, we're going to go back and uh, get back wages, I mean, this is coming up to be a nice, uh, really a nice uh, active platform for Democrats in 2020.
1: Mm, interesting point there. So for the idea that you could have, um, he wants to do education seminars for employers. Certainly mm-hmm. that would be expected more opportunities for financial settlements between employers and workers. That one interests me, this idea of, of, of financial settlements, because it, it could go one of two ways. You either do a high profile you know, dunking of someone, mm-hmm. you know, a law, many, many lawsuits that mm-hmm. says to the employer world, this is your fate if we find you, or you quietly settle behind the scenes. Which is the better way to go here?
4: It's, it's actually hard for me to say. I yeah. will say that that a part of me kind of cringed at the idea of the settlements, not because I don't think that realistically that's gonna be what has to happen, right. but because I, I idealistically feel like, you owe the money and you owe it to these people right. and they need the money. Right. I mean, there is no question right. that people are living even more hand to mouth because they're not being paid fully. So there's a part of me that's like, ah, oh, you're on the hook for everything. But I recognize settlements are going to have to happen mm-hmm. um, in order for people to get payment quickly. And that's the, that's always the, the tension in settlements. Will I get right. the money now or do I have to finish fighting
1: this Oh Are we gonna see the, you know an era of new TV commercials from lawyers claiming, if you've been, if you've been, you know, not. We getting probably already lawyers. do. I right, have. Yeah. I, I don't watch that much. <laughs>
10: TV.
4: Um, Sorry for that you know, the, TV the, voice the there. Tough, the tough thing <laughs> is that these are not cases that lawyers can always take. Okay. I mean, there are a couple of firms in, in town in Albuquerque who've done a really good job with this, mm-hmm. but, but the truth is, we're talking about, in the big picture small amounts of money to individuals. Right. And without state involvement, without sort of the larger the larger community of people who are owed money, um, I, I'm leery to say class action, but, but without that larger force there, mm-hmm. um, it can be very hard to go to an attorney and say, so I think I'm owed $2,000, will you take my case? I mean, it just is, it, gotcha. how does that work That's out? It's realistic, yeah. as, as opposed to state enforcement, I think this is an appropriate use
1: of the state's hammer. I appreciate that distinction. Uh, Dan, some might say this is probably shows that this was too much of a bite for some employers in some categories out there, meaning they were on the edge anyway, and then the, the minimum wage goes up, they couldn't get there so to speak, and this is what we warned everybody about, you know what I mean, that kind of an angle. Would you agree with that or is no, it just so? so okay. the law is the law. and Mm -hmm.
2: and and one of the problems that i have because we deal with this with some of our clients right that have this issue come up i will tell you this and i agree with sophie it's hard to say go find a lawyer because we owe you 900 dollars, and then you know so sue me right so i mean but but here's the problem though i think workforce solutions has shown an inability to work with the public to work with the employers Uh and here's what i mean by that these tactics, I'd like to see them say, the first thing we're gonna do is look at how many of these are fraudulent complaints. And we're gonna get those off the books and we're gonna tell those people, look, you may think you were owed, maybe you should have been owed, but the law says ABC. Um, In the times that I've seen this stuff, these guys come in with unfettered access and they rake the employer over the coals. And at the end of the day, I can just tell you, I've been part of this with clients where they just keep going after the employer for something that the employer clearly didn't do wrong. Mm -hmm. And then they start offering the employer the opportunity to settle for something they didn't do, which then entices more complaints to come. Mm -hmm. I think they need to do their job. Don't get me wrong. My point is the folks that are fraudulently doing this, the folks that are taking advantage of these people should be prosecuted to the fullest extent of the law. The people that have done things wrong because they don't understand or don't have the capability to understand, we shouldn't hammer them. We should work with them to fix the problem. And the ones that are having fraudulent complaints put against them, something needs to be done to discourage that from happening. And I think if we break these up into three categories and Mm -hmm. go after the fraudulent guys that Mm -hmm. are doing things wrong Mm -hmm. knowingly and hammer the snot out of them, I think that number will dwindle quickly. I
4: think it's yeah, an interesting point. element. Um, this idea that that they're going to really promote education, so that the, I think the idea being, maybe we can fix those ones in advance, right. and that's certainly in regulation in general, that's what you want. Is you want to you want to try and fix the fixable, gotcha. and if it's possible to do that through education, if it's possible to do that through that sort of support, mm-hmm. then that's a real win,
5: even mm-hmm. just that. And I just I don't I mean, feel like a these guys right now with ADP. Um, about to the tune of about $60,000. For me, that's a lot of money. Sure. And so when you talk about you know minimum wage, you know, a lot of the big employers, I hear that people don't think much of, McDonald's, Target, Walmart, they're all paying higher than minimum mm-hmm, wage. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And they have very specific payroll procedures. Merritt Allen has one firm, 20 employees, and ADP. And when they make a mistake, uh, and it was on my tax payments, oh, wow. it's a lot for me to recover not only their error, but um, also make good with the tax agencies. Mm -hmm. So Dan's point about, and your point about education, a lot of employers want to do the right thing, and it's so complex we can't. I just don't like the Mm -hmm.
2: fact that this seems, this is my opinion, that I get it that there's a problem out there, and there are people that are being wronged, and they should be addressed. It just seems like, these guys in this issue are running forward like they're Robin Hood. Instead of stepping forward and saying, hold on, there is a problem, and we are going to go after the bad actors, but we're also gonna work with the people that have a misunderstanding and help them get up to speed. Mm-hmm. I think right now every employer, when you see these messages come from the, the administration or from from uh, the Secretary McCamley, I think employers sphincters tighten and they just recoil and they're like, man, we're gonna get in trouble. And I think that's bad for business. Last word, Michael,
1: yeah. a network of 20 offices statewide, better able to serve remote communities and those two employees, extra employees. Is that enough? I mean, we're talking about, he's talking about a huge stack
3: here. Only two more employees? Wouldn't you think this would be a little more vigor to get I, I don't. I mean, I don't think that it's, it's going to be enough, but yeah. I think it's a start and I think it's a conservative start, yeah. you know, especially considering that they're asking you know, for a certain amount of money to get this done. There you go.
1: After wrapping up for us this week, thanks for all our panelists, certainly for their work getting up to speed on our issues.